Welcome to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. And now your host, Sonia Estrasoltani. Hi, welcome to this new episode of the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. I'm your host today. I'm Sonia Estrasoltani. I'm the editor-in-chief at Rappaport. And my guest today is Francesca Cartier-Brickell. Hi, Francesca. Absolutely delighted to have you on a, on the podcast today. You're the author of uh, The Cartiers, which I think is certainly the jewelry history book that has been the most discussed since it launched last autumn. A lot of people have recommended it, praised it, loved it. I'm one of them. I think it's, uh, it's a beautiful history book into uh, the brand. Um, just to give a bit of background to our listeners who haven't read it yet, it chronicles the story of your family from the beginning of the, sh- the store, the Cartier store in Paris that was in 1847 up to the end of um, middle 1970s when uh, the family business wasn't part of the, the family anymore. And uh, it seems a bit crazy to say that there was a time in America in the 20th century when people didn't know who Cartier uh, was. They didn't know how to pronounce Cartier even as a name because it's such an iconic uh, jewelry brand all over the world. Um, I think we will take the whole podcast just to to name all the famous collectors of uh, of Cartier. But today, um, since we, we want to cover themes that will be of interest to, to our listeners on estate jewelry and uh, jewelry history, Francesca would like us to, to cover a few highlights of uh, Cartier prestigious history. So I'll start with, in the news, we just saw it was last week uh, from the time of this recording, Sotheby sold a beautiful Tutti Frutti bracelet for 1.3 million. And what's more extraordinary is that this was an on- online sale. It's the biggest online sale so far. And um, show something is that you not, you don't even need to see a piece of Cartier Tutti Frutti uh, jewelry to want to buy it because it's such an iconic, well-known style and such a rare, precious uh, piece of jewelry. And as the great-granddaughter of Jacques Cartier, who went to India with his uh, brother, Louis, started the... Uh, where where the the creators of this of this style? Can you tell us a bit more about India, the importance of India in uh, Jacques and Louis' creations, and with all the stories you heard from from your grandfather Jean Jacques, and also from the sources you you explored over over the ten years of your research that led to to the writing of the book? Sure. Um, well, yeah, that was a phenomenal result at the auction, and and really exciting and. Um, it was fun. I was involved in a small way in the auction. I did a kind of, um, you know, being in lockdown, I can't fly around the world, but we did. A, I did an Insta Live with Sotheby's before to try and bring to life some of the history um, and and show some of my great grandfather's uh, diaries and photographs of those trips of India. Um, because to me, the value of those tutti frutti pieces is yes, it's in the craftsmanship and in the gems, but also in that kind of fantastic exotic heritage. Yeah, as you say, Jacques Cartier was my great grandfather, and um, he. So, first of all, let's step back a second. The three Cartier brothers inherited um, the, the small Parisian jewelry firm from their that their grandfather had founded. Right, so they came on the scene in the in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, and they inherited this Parisian business, and they shared a dream to to turn this 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 local business into the leading jewelry firm in the world. And to do that, they had a plan, and their plan was to split the world between them, divide and conquer. So Louis, the eldest brother, he felt it was his right to have the Paris headquarters. Um, Pierre, the middle brother, wanted America, and he went off and set up Cartier in New York. 
And that fell to my great grandfather, Jack, the youngest brother, to, to take over the London branch. But with London, of course, went the British colonies, um, the most important of which was India. So it was that, like, when Jack was 27 years old, he found himself on a ship um, bound for India. And the year was 1911, which was no coincidence because that was a, the, the year of the great Delhi Durbar, kind of when all the Indian princes would, would be in Delhi to celebrate the coronation of the new British king, King George V. And so Jack went there at this time because it would be a perfect opportunity to meet as many of these ruling princes, who, by the way, were some of the biggest jewellery buyers in the world, um, all at one time and in one place. Very effective way of doing it. So he went with his suitcases of jewels um, and he went to his Delhi Durbar and he, he literally was a bit like a travelling salesman. He went around the different Maharajas' encampments trying to meet them and to show them these, these, these jewellery from Cartier, this, this European jewellery firm. Um, and the actual the Durbar was actually a bit disappointing for him in terms of sales because he said while he'd taken out all the delicate diamond garland style tiaras and necklaces and corsage ornaments that were in such fashion in, in Paris at the time. Um, in India, the, the Maharajas were not buying for, the, for their women, as the men did in Paris. They were buying for themselves. So they didn't want these delicate items. Um, so he didn't actually manage to sell many of the jewels he'd bought. Um, what he did sell was was pocket watches because the, the Maharajas wanted this kind of um, what was in fashion in Paris at the time with the men, the pocket watches. But but the trip was really good in terms of building up relationships with the Maharajas. And over the years, Jack would travel back to India many, many times. And I'm lucky enough to have his diaries where he talks about those trips. Um, and they're quite fun. You know, he travels with his wife, Nellie, on some of the trips and, and they go... Because Nellie needs her 18 suitcases of clothes. She takes her dresser along with her. Um, and because Jacques's been a bit ill, and he, well, he got very ill, actually. He got gassed in World War One. He takes his doctor with her, him. And they go by Rolls-Royce. They take their Rolls-Royce all the way from England to India. And, and this, this team from kind of Surrey in England travel around India. And, and they go on great, you know, they have great adventures. And where the Rolls, sometimes they encounter a stream that crosses the road. And the locals have to quickly make a raft for the Rolls Royce. Or on one trip, when the salesman was trying to get across the Himalayas to Nepal to go and meet the king of Nepal to try and sell him jewellery, the Rolls Royce can't, can't drive over the Himalayas. So the locals literally take it apart piece by piece, carry over like a wheel, a steering wheel, <laughs> a door, and then, and then put the rolls back together the other side of the Himalayas and off they drive to Nepal. Um, so they go on these great adventures and, and all and all around, Jack is writing about what he sees and sketching what he sees. Um, everything from carvings in a temple. Um, and, and it was very interesting because I actually followed his steps around the country and I went to some of the temples he'd been to and I could place the, the sketches in his diary with the exact carving he'd seen. And I also suddenly saw how a particular Indian motif he'd sketched then became the shape on a tiara that he'd made in 1936. Really exciting to see to see that. But he also talked a lot about the colour in India and um, that kind of explosion of multicoloured. And he said, in India, one does not see un- as under the English light. It's just one a kind of explosion of vividness and brightness. And, and it's really this that he wanted to recreate in his Tutti Frutti jewels. So he wanted to give most of his clients in Europe, and even Louis, his brothers, and Pierre, hadn't been to India. 
And they had lots of books on India, but the books were generally um, not in colour. And they didn't really bring to life that explosion of, of, of life, of, of brightness. And that's what he wanted to recreate for his clients back home. So he brought back with him these, these carved gemstones, carved rubies, carved emeralds, carved sapphires. Um, and they were generally carved into the shapes of leaves or buds. And they were relatively affordable compared to the big stones because they were quite small. And because they were carved, um, if there had been flaws in the stone, the flaws could be carved, carved out of them. So they're relatively affordable. So it wasn't that they were like the big value items, but they were still the big effect items because he was combining all these, you know, the colours together in a way that was very bold for the time um, back in the West. That wasn't at all the fashion at the time. The fashion was for more monotone pieces. Um, so that was really the kind of genesis of, of this tutti frutti style. That was big breakthrough actually in jewelry because it seemed like all deco had been more, as you said, monochromatic um, palettes and uh, sapphire, diamonds, uh, diamonds, onyx um, jewelry. So suddenly there was explosion of uh, exotic colors. That that's very interesting. There's, um, yeah, exactly. And I think it was really because it was a bit, you know, unusual and, and rebellious almost. It was picked up on by some of those the trendsetters of the day, people like Daisy Fellows, mm. who didn't like to follow the trends. They liked to make them. Um, and of course, you know, they w- what they wore was kind of then written about in vogue and suddenly everyone else wanted it too. So when Daisy Fellows bought, bought the Collier in, in 1936, which was a, this amazing Tutti Frutti necklace, um, kind of the real culmination of, of the Tutti Frutti necklaces probably, um, that made a real statement. And and it became, you know, even more popular among other people as well. But they did great things with them. There's one, there's one in the um, V&A Museum that used to belong to Lady Mountbatten, which is a tutti-frutti tiara that um, Jack made in London in 1928. But it can also be split into um, two bracelets. So um, I love that one. I think it's <laughs> great. Oh, it's a like, stunning piece. It yeah. is stunning. And I think I think you know we associate so many um, iconic creations to to Cartier, um, the garland um, necklaces that you mentioned that Jacques traveled with to to India, the the tutti frutti. Then we'll you know I hope we'll be able to to talk about other other creations. But before we go into the the pieces, the jewels, can you tell us a bit more about what is the Cartier style? Because that's something that I think comes across in the book um, very nicely. But what what is it? What's this magical um, creation that is called the Cartier Jewel? Yeah, it's true. It's something I really wanted to kind of uh, approach in the book because because um, I I'd come into jewelry not from a jewelry background. I'd I'd come in. I actually used to work in finance, um, but I was kind of the more I spoke to grand, my grandfather and about the past. And when I found discovered this trunk of letters in his cellar, which kind of opened up this 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 um, window into a different era. I, that's how I kind of got drawn into the story. But but I really, um, and because of that, I spoke to lots of um, gem experts and dealers. And and so many of them said to me, always a kind of common point of what they said to me was like, you know, Cartier is, is so distinct. You know, you can tell an antique Cartier piece. It just stands out. And I was always like, but how can you tell? Because they're all so different. As you say, you've got the garland style, you know, diamond and platinum. Then you've got tutti frutti, which is bold mix of colors. You've got watches you've got mystery clocks you've got jabot pins you've got tiaras you've got bondos you've got you know maharaja's turban ornaments you've got so many different things how can you tell that they're all cartier 
Um, and it was a question I asked my grandfather as well. And, and he used to say, well, it's so hard to say in a word. I have to, so he used to sit with me and look through the, the old catalogues from the auction houses and point out pieces that were Cartier and why they were Cartier. Um, and basically, it, it all boils down to this, this motto that the Cartier brothers had, which was never copy, only create. And the idea mm. was that could and should take inspiration from everywhere except from existing jewellery. Um, and so Louis Cartier, when he started designing pieces, so it was really Louis, actually, who, who decided that they should have a, a unique style. Prior to Louis joining the firm, his father and grandfather had bought in place pieces from other workshops and sold them on. There had been no unique Cartier style, really, no distinct style. Um, but Louis decided they needed to create their own pieces. And to do that, he hired a team of designers from other fields. So he hired a lace maker, he hired an architect, he hired interior designers, he hired um, people who are experts in ceramics. He wanted to bring something new to the jewellery trade. But he also wanted them all to kind of have an understanding of classical art. And, you know, it's no surprise that, that many of the Cartier designers were artists in their own right. And they'd studied at the best art school, Ecole des Arts Decoratives in Paris. My grandfather went there with the Ecole Boulogne in London and in New York as well. They'd often studied at the best art school. So they understood this, this um, the kind of the classical proportions as well. And I think that was really important to Cartier, that the idea that they, they wanted to break convention, they wanted to create new interesting pieces, but they, there was also a great respect for t- tradition and um, symmetry and proportion. And in fact, there was a really interesting letter from uh, actually a speech that Pierre Cartier made. Pierre was the brother who went to New York. And he said that, you know, artists need to breathe the air of Paris to create artistic models. And he said in in New York, the problem was you had kind of skyscrapers next to um, tiny buildings. And he said, that does nothing for the artist. How can an artist breathe and understand how to create beautiful pieces with, with that lack of symmetry and proportion? Um, and so I think part of that Cartier style is, is the Parisian element as well. And it's interesting because even when Cartier New York was setting up their workshop and Cartier London was setting up their workshop, they, they sent out designers initially from Paris to train the people in America or to train the people in London. So that, that sense of Parisian yeah, proportion had to kind of flow through from the top. Um, and, and as a result, I think you get this kind of very cohesive style. I mean, my grandfather trained, he was an apprentice, you know, and he trained under the top Cartier designer, Charles Jacot. And he trained for three years under Jacot. And during the day, he was training under Jacot. And during night, he was going to art school in École des Arts Décoratives. Um, and it was a very strict training. And it's not like you suddenly became a designer at Cartier and could start designing pieces. Um, there was one funny story. There was a designer in London, um, a lovely man I, I met, an elderly man who I met, who, who worked under my grandfather um, and my great grandfather, in fact. And he said he joined and he was very chuffed to have been given a job at Cartier London. And um, and he, he joined and he was quite confident because he'd been to art school and he arrived and he did a, a sketch the first day and he thought, well, you know, I've really shown them how great I am. Um, and and Mr. Cartier came up to him at the end of the day and said, well, yeah, it's, it's very good, very good, Garda, but it's not quite Cartier. Try again. So um, Dennis came home a bit disillusioned that evening. Um, and the next day he went in, he tried again, 
And, and the same response came back that day. Yeah, still not quite there. Try again. You know, watch what the other designers are doing. Sit with them. Look at them. So Gardner, this went on not just for the next couple of days or the next couple of weeks, but this went on for three years. Um, <laughs> yes, I, re- I remember the story from the book. Oh, <laughs> I went to go and see him and I met him and his wife and they made they were so sweet. They'd made me kind of, you know, tea and Victoria Sponge and we sat with them having tea and this story, he just got, his wife then cut into the story at this point and he, she said, she was lovely, she was called Mimi, she said, I still remember the moment Dennis walked through the door after those three years and he was just ecstatic and he said, I've got it, Mimi, I finally got it. Um, and from then on he was off and he designed pieces from everyone you know for everyone from Elton John to the to the Queen of England and he was one of the top cartoons. I love that story in the book um because I thought you your grandfather really gave him his chance and um and also the the way um that came from his uh from his uncles and from from his father the way of of seeing potential in uh in craftsmen and really encouraging them and and uh, you mentioned it in a book, you know, from all the apprentices that join a quality workshop, very few actually would be still there after a few years because the standard was extremely high and some of them would go somewhere else. It wasn't because you entered quality that you you carried on working for quality if you, if you didn't meet the standards, the exacting standards of, uh, of uh, craftsmanship. Exactly. And it was often, I mean, some apprenticeships were six, seven years for the, for the mm-hmm. craftsman. And... Um, but but you're right, they gave, I mean, I mem- remember my grandfather telling me that his father, Jack, had given a job to the chauffeur's son, the chauffeur who, who drove them around India in the Rolls Royce. And, um, his son, um, Jack had seen potential in his son because he'd seen him at the house doing certain things and just the way he he seemed to understand, ha- have an aesthetic sense. And he gave a job to, to the chauffeur's son and he ended up being one of the best craftsmen. Um, which is a lot but you're right because even the even the craftsmen who didn't make it through the apprenticeship period each year some of them would would be you know wouldn't, wouldn't make it through to the next year apparently they could still get excellent jobs in the industry because even one year training at Cartier as an apprentice was enough to be you know relatively senior craftsman elsewhere but you had to be such um, an extraordinary talented craftsman to be able to work for Cartier because some of the the design. Um, I would like us to uh, you to tell us a bit more about you know some of the watches or the mystery clocks. I know Christie's is going to sell um, a whole beautiful collection of mystery yeah. clocks in the I think the coming week, yeah. um, and just the the shape of some of the watches or some of the the mechanism, the 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 high level of skills that were involved in these creations. We it's no it's no wonder they. They collect those items and they, they perform so well in auction houses. Um, what 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 kind of highlights would you like to to share with us from the the items that the jewels that you think are really on a you know from from for a collector? What that would be that would be interesting to know a bit more. I was thinking of the the Santos watch because of its um, of its origin and uh, and the story behind it. What, what what would you like to to tell us? What work would you share? Yeah, no, well, I will. Yeah, the Santos and the um, mystery clock. I think they all show us different things. I mean, you say the mystery clock before. I'll talk about Santos in a minute. But the, the mystery clock. I mean, like my grandfather told me the story of how his uncle Louis was. You know, Uncle Louis had a bit. He was brilliant, an absolute creative genius, and had these great visions for um, how things should be or could be. Um, he'd actually done awfully at school because he refused to follow the rules. You know, he, they, the <laughs> report said you know his head is in the clouds. He's not focusing enough. 
but it was the very fact that his head was in the clouds that he was able to come up with these, these ideas. Um, but coming up with this idea of this mystery clock and taking it to, this is another thing I found extraordinary. He, he, had, he didn't have a background in clocks, but, you know, he, that, that didn't stop him. He found, you know, the top expert who did, you know, he, he worked with Kue or, um, or, or on the mystery clocks. And he, you know, he had this idea and he was convinced it could be done. And he took it to to the clockmakers and the workshop, and the, the designers had to work very closely with the clockmakers because the designers, of course, had to understand the mechanism in order to design a piece around it. So they worked in in collaboration, and then but the piece wasn't quite as Louis wanted it, and he kept sending it back to the workshop. My grandfather told me the first mystery clock took took a year to make, and each time Louis sent it back, they said, "Well, you know, it can't be done in the way you want," and he just absolutely insisted um and it was that i think cartier perfectionism and insistence on the best which means those pieces do still reach records at auction today because they were so brilliantly made um and even you know 100 years later they 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 stand out so um i think the mystery clots of the you know whenever i see one i think of louis and I'm like apparently the workshop was just terrified of him every time he would storm <laughs> <back in. laughs> um, like tear strips off them with the expression grandpa would use but you know it worked it got it got the results um but yeah so the santos is is the so the, the first wristwatch really that cartier made for men and that i mean the more research i did into it uh, the more i i realized how how brilliantly innovative it was at the time really because um i mean so the, the story goes that, that santos alberto santos dumont this brazilian aviator um who was a real character would fly around paris in his flying machines some of them looked kind of like a bit like a hot air balloon on it like there's one that looked like a hot air balloon on its side like, like kind of a giant rugby ball flying through the sky and he used to kind of apparently fly um stop off at restaurants and bars and just um, tie it to a lamppost as he popped in for a glass of champagne. Um, <laughs> I love it. I'm sorry, I'm just going to interrupt you, Francesca, because I would yeah. like to say your book has such a phenomenal gallery of characters, of colourful characters, of um, and Santos is one of them. I just uh, said in a in a little anecdote. So it's a it's such a pleasure to meet these collectors, these jewelry lovers, and people who also push the boundaries of fashion and technology and. And, and style. So, um, so I think that, that really that's one of the elements of the books. It's not just about the Cartiers, but also all the people around them that, that nurture their creativity and the exchange of, um, of ideas and, and just inspirations between, between these very strong characters from the, from the 20th century. So sorry to interrupt, but it's something I thought that's very important to mention that it's not just about the family history is really so much about all the people. Yes, and that's what was so fun to research, to dive into their lives. That's why it took so long. That's why my father <laughs> kept saying, come on, enough. This is not a book about them. This is a book about your family. But I could have gone on and on. And I would, I did so much research about all these fascinating people because you're right, the people who they, the Cartiers were mixing with were kind of often brilliant in their own fields, not in the jewellery field necessarily. You know, there was, for example, Cocteau, you know, of course, Jean Cocteau, who was artist in the literature playwright poet um but pushing the boundaries of his field and santos who was an aviator and pushing the boundaries of his field and so you know for for the cartiers to be mingling with these these people was was i think it must have been an incredibly exciting time to live um absolutely and how do you create a watch for someone who has his own plane to go and drink champagne exactly so santos yeah he's um, and Santos was um, friends of Louis Cartier, apparently, not surprisingly, given that they, they both kind of like 
this idea of, of um, pushing pushing the rules, pushing convention, doing do, doing things differently. Um, but he and, and one evening, um, apparently, he was at Maxime's in in Paris, you know, the fashionable restaurant at the time, with, with Louis, and he was there to collect an award, or he'd just collected an award for one of his the, the flying races through Paris. And he was complaining that he couldn't, uh, or talking to Louis about how it had been annoying for him because he couldn't time himself. It was a it was a race against it was a timed race. He couldn't time himself as he was racing because he couldn't put his hand in his pocket to pick out his pocket watch because obviously his hands had to be on the controls. And and it, and it was said to be that, that that inspired Louis to come up with the idea of um, you know putting the, the watch effectively on his wrist and and um, attaching it with the strap. This wasn't entirely a new idea because men had tied pocket watches to their wrists um, in, in the Boer War, you know, previous times when they'd, when they'd had to. But that wasn't, that wasn't what Louis wanted to do. He didn't want to tie a pocket watch to one's wrist. Louis was all about, um, it had to, form and function had to work perfectly together. So if there was going to be some type of timepiece on the wrist, it had to be, it had to attach to the wrist in a totally seamless way. It had to look like one beautiful object. Um, and so he came up with the idea of the, the Santos watch where, you know, it'd be attached with a, with a leather strap and it would have this sapphire wa- winder and it would have beautiful um, uh, numbers on it, a beautiful dial. So the whole thing would be a, a piece of beauty. You know, it'd almost be like a jewel with the sapphire winder. It was a, a nod to his jeweler's background. It wasn't simply a, um, a something from a watchmaker. And he worked closely with... with um, Edmund Jager, the watchmaker of the time, and they they came up with this watch. They came up with a, a buckle for the watch as well, the buckle deployer. Um, and and in time, they marketed it to the public. But to me, what was so interesting was, I mean, if you think now, of course, you look around and everyone's got watches, men and women. But back then, watches, you know, the word for for watches in in French, women called they were mont bracelet, weren't they? They were. They were like bracelets, and, and women wore watches, but they wore them with a diamond strap or a silk strap, and and they were very feminine. So to ask a man to wear a watch was like asking a man, in a way, to wear a bracelet. Louis had to effectively change the entire mentality, the way people looked at this item, um, and he did that brilliantly through Santos, because Santos was, they said he was a character, but he was this huge global celebrity. I'm. I mean, his, his picture was on plates. It was on matchbox cases. It was in newspapers. It was all over the world. He was one of the biggest, the most famous people in the world at the time. So for Louis to not only give his watch to San, give this first watch to Santos, but also to call it the Santos, you know, it meant the fashionable men about town looked to Santos as his trendsetter and said, oh, what's he wearing? Um, and suddenly it became okay for a man to wear a watch. And that's what I found so interesting as well, is that they were, I mentioned before, this never copy, only create when it came to the style, the Cartier style. But it was also when it came to the, the marketing, you know, they, they, they kind of came up with the idea of these early brand ambassadors, you know, um, before that was even, <laughs> before that had a name. And it seems like um, you mentioned in the book, wait, wait, there are other, other iconic watches, the tank watch and uh, a few other, the Benoit, the the some that are just inspired by Salvatore Dali's um, clocks. So, uh, you know, it would take a whole <laughs> podcast just to explain how difficult it was for the, for the craftsmen when this idea came up. Um, and I love it. I think one of artists, um, is it 
and they are wall who had a tank who didn't who didn't work and he says it doesn't matter because you know it doesn't worry because he needs a watch but because he wanted a, a tank watch yes yes no exactly when he was asked that's it why why he never wound his tank he said i don't wear a watch to tell the t- i don't wear a tank to tell the time i wear a tank because it's a watch to wear exactly <laughs> and uh, so there's there's half amazing in in this generation in the generation of Louis Pierre and Jack suddenly Cartier became such a must-have um, brand so and I think you know now we've seen a lot of estate dealers I think one of the the watches for sure but I think also the Panther the the Panther jewelry may be a, a brooch or um, a, a, a watch with a, um, the onyx the diamonds the what was so special about this Panther um I think well, that's, that was interesting as well, researching the panther, because I think the panther um, motif had been around in Cartier from, from the early 20th, 20th century, as you said. I think the panther really came, uh, it was with the Duchess of Windsor, probably after the Second World War, um, when she bought multiple pieces of panther jewellery, that kind of that really set off the big cat trend in jewels. And, you know, because she was linked with the panther jewels, they became associated with this image of a strong woman, um, and Jean Toussaint um, was in charge of the, the, the creative side of Cartier at that time, so they kind of became linked with her and, and the Duchess of Windsor. Um, and I think since then it's become more iconically related to Cartier, perhaps. But what I found was interesting was, in fact, as you say, Cartier were creating kind of panther-themed pieces much, much earlier than that. And I mentioned Charles Jacob before, Louise, head designer, who, who my grandfather mm-hmm. said was so important in developing the, the Cartier style. Him and Louis worked closely together um, on so many things. And and I've seen pictures of, of Jaco, you know, from before the First World War, where he's sketching panthers. And and he came up with this yes, pa- um, uh, panther motif, uh, kind of bracelet, watch bracelet with diamonds and onyx. Um, I think that was in 1909 or something. And then, of course, I mentioned Jack going to India and he talks a lot about, um, you know, he stays all over the place. And sometimes him and Nelly stay in really rough station houses, sleeping on the floor, but at other times they stay in luxury and palaces. And part of those palace days is often a panther shoot. Um, and they talk about the thrilling panther shoots and there are photos of them there with the Maharaja and the Panthers and and so you see this theme of Panthers kind of being part of of, of their of their lives really. Um, mm. and I've got my grandfather's old book of the, the Jungle Book, which was his favourite story as a child, and you can see that in that book. So this this would have been in the 1920s, so well before the Duchess of Windsor and her Panthers. But in in this book, um, it's really sweet because it's obviously his bedtime story that his father's reading him, and then. His father's obviously taken the book back down to his study um, after his son's gone to bed and has circled an image of the panther and written little notes next to it about how they might turn it into a design on a cigarette box. Um, so I love the idea that this kind of idea of panther is coming from so many different sources, you know. Um, and then, and then, as I say, yes, by the kind of 1950s, it's it's being associated with. Um, with the Duchess of Windsor or Barbara Hutton or these these strong women, um, which and it's I, still it's still a, a big hit among uh, among estate um, jewelry collectors because it's so so timeless. The the symbol of it is such an elegant so well. Um, there's something you mentioned you your grandfather as a boy. Um, 
Jean-Jacques was the, the last one to, to actually manage um, a family-run branch in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think by the time you were, um, that was 1974, I think, when he, when he left the business and retired. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so you actually never knew him as, uh, as um, Jean-Jacques Cartier um, running the, the, the store. But after every, all the exchanges you had, all the, the, um, the, the time you spent with him and you asked him to, to be able to collect his memories, the, um, what, what do you see as your grandfather's um, own style? How did you, what was this interest? What, um, what, what did he contribute to the, the Cartier um, catalogue of, of beautiful creations that you, particularly, uh, that you particularly like and you would like to, to share with us? Yeah, well, I think Grandpa was an artist. You know, he was a modest, humble, kind of introverted man who, who, who said that he should have been spending his lunch breaks at work meeting clients in Browns and Mayfair, just like his father had done. But he said he, he left that to the salesman and he, he used to, to buy a sandwich from the Italian little coffee shop on the corner, eat it as fast as he could. So he had time to wander around the galleries and Sotheby's and Christie's and just absorb the art, you know. So so I think he, he as I mentioned before, he trained under this Charles Jaco, the Paris's head designer. He went to art school every evening. He'd grown up with his father's artistic sensibilities as well and design sense. Um, so, so he really understood the Cartier style from a young age. Um, and what he loved was... Um, he loved, well, first of all, just take a step back a bit. He joined the firm in after the Second World War. Um, and at that time, it was an almost impossible time to be running a jewellery firm, a luxury jewellery firm, because the tax on jewellery at that stage was 125%. Can you imagine before the Second World War, his father had been creating tiaras, you know, for the coronation and phenomenal pieces, uh, biggest necklaces, you know, in Cartier London's history for the Maharajas. And and then suddenly the Second World War happens. My grandfather's father sadly passes away. He's a young man who's done his apprenticeship and he's suddenly having to take over Cartier London at a time when when no one can possibly think of buying jewellery. There's still rationing in, in England. So he has to kind of rethink everything that he's that he's been taught really and think, well, where what can we be creating at this time? And so I think he really turned his attention to more practical items like watches. He built up the watch Wright and Davis workshop in, in, in East London, um, like cases. And, and where he did do jewels, yes, there were a few big pieces. Of course, there are always exceptions. But generally, where he did do jewels, they, they tended to be people were buying smaller items, you know. Um, mm. And he made a lot of... Um, um, animal brooches and flower brooches and I love them because I remember growing up grandpa would was amazing of just a, a pencil and a scrap of paper and he would suddenly you know he would sketch away and suddenly you'd have an animal springing to life on that paper um, and um, he so those, those um, bird brooches he made mean a lot to me because I've got so many sketches of his little birds um, and also because I, I live now in his house in, in, in France and and his garden is filled with all the flowers he planted and, you know, the, the garden is filled with the bird songs. So whenever I see a little brooch, you know, a flower brooch or a bird brooch, it really does remind me of him. But he also did pieces like, he was also not afraid to kind of break with convention and, and he was running the business. You know, that fourth generation, it was very different for them. They were running the business in the 1960s. 
um, which was such a rebellious time when you compare that to the 20s and 30s. And and so he had to kind of, they jewelers at that time had to adjust to, to what people were asking for. And they weren't asking for the same big jewellery pieces, the big tiaras, or the same pieces that their parents had worn. They wanted something different. So I did ask my grandfather about how he came up with the idea, for example, for the crash watch, which again is another iconic watch nowadays. Um, and he'd said, you know, it was a swing, swinging 60s, people were wanting something a bit different. And he took the, he had the idea by, there was this um, Paris oval watch, a bit like, you know, oval shaped Benoit watch. And he thought he would just adjust it slightly by um, putting a kink in it and pinching the ends and making it look a bit like it had been in a crash. Um, so I think, I thought that was interesting, the way that he'd been taught very traditionally uh, within this Cartier style. And he many of the pieces he made were very symmetrical and timeless, but he wasn't afraid to kind of break with that and do something out of the ordinary as well. And that's, um, I guess that's one of your personal favourites, the, the bird brooch because of the, the connection to your grandfather. What is the... Cartier piece that is maybe in the famous collection of that we know of or that has been sold in auction that you you think is uh, is really something that epitomized the the Cartier style. See that is hard because there's so many different elements, many. <laughs> aren't there? I mean, I love um, what is. I mean, it's, it is so hard because the garland style, which is so delicate and almost lace like. Is stunning, but it's so different to that, you know, that was before the First World War um, for the very feminine kind of um, dresses and, you know, the big corsage ornaments. It's a fantastic um, garden style corsage ornament, isn't there, that's sold in the recent uh, the Christie's auction last year. The, oh, it? the Maharaja and Mag- Maharaja. Yes. yes, that was a, not a Maharaja piece. It to, to India, actually, and the... The, the the dialogue between two two cultures yes yeah that exactly. was and I mean there was some yeah so there's a, there's a stunning diamond pattern and corsage ornament that that sold in that auction which I adored but there's also then they got the bright colorful ones there was one a belt buckle did you see that one it was um emerald and sapphire and diamond belt buckle very kind of geometrical but also Indian had an Indian feel um and I and I love that as well it's very that Two very different pieces, um, but both, I think, classically Cartier and striking in their own way. Oh, there are so many pieces. I don't know. <laughs> but I think, I think people who will um, who read your book or will read your book will will appreciate even more the, the work, the craftsmanship. I think what, was, what I enjoyed very much about your book is not just the family history and the the there's a lot of tenderness for these memories that your grandfather shared with you, but also the the homage you pay to to all the craftsmen who were involved in the in the Cartier business because you had the the leading forces of uh, Louis, of course, and and Pierre, you know, the, the more the businessman, the one who set up the Cartier store in New York, and your great grandfather Jacques in London, who also you know brought so much from his trips, from his imagination, from his culture, but. You have the craftsmen who also made it happen, and I think I think the book really is is a wonderful saying that it, you know it takes a whole beautiful team to to create such a, such high um, pieces of jewelry. Yeah, so, um, exactly. So yeah, I think that's something that really that that really touched me in the in the book, and uh, 
And I think if you like jewelry, if you like um, history, because it's also a, a book that starts in 1847 up to through 1974. So you can imagine that a lot, a lot of things happen, world wars and, and many things in between. And um, and the, the characters you meet in that book are absolutely fascinating. Well, that was kind of, yeah, that, and that was actually one of my motivations because I think my grandfather felt strongly that, you know, it was, as you say, it was totally a team effort and they had some incredible people working for them and that these people were, had you know, Cartier had a policy, which wasn't unusual, many jewellers did, of keeping the people behind the scenes behind the scenes. You know, you put the Cartier mm-hmm. name on the piece, you didn't put the designer's name on the piece or the craftsman name on the piece. So they they effectively unsung heroes, and he felt they deserved to be to be recognised. You know, in London, Paris, and New York, there were incredible designers. Set, I mean, yeah, there was one story. So when they were setting this emerald necklace for a maharaja, Jacques gave the the setter two days off work, so his hands. So he was totally calm. So his hands didn't shake at all because emeralds are quite fragile, and this carved emerald was incredibly valuable and a historical stone and you know any slight shake of the hand could have caused the emerald to crack and when you kind of realize that you'll realize oh my gosh you know every part of this process from the design to the mounted to the setter you know then you have these expert polishers that my grandfather was saying like an expert polisher can kind of polish out the tiniest floor but you don't polish out too much so that the stone you know becomes smaller it's such an art every step of the way um, which I did personally, I didn't appreciate that before at all. Um, but and, and I actually managed to track down. That was part of my research, which I loved tracking down some of these these specialists, these experts, or in the case where they passed away, tracking down their their descendants and really understanding um, their role. And and what struck me was their their just their dedication to their job and their their loyalty to the firm and just their respect for it. And they worked for Cartier not because there were enormous salaries, but because they had such pride in their work and they were so proud to be working for this firm. And it was almost like this huge extended family. And now some of those people I've tracked down, I feel like they're my family. You know, now in this coronavirus time, I've been calling them up and finding out how they all are. (laughs) We've been having long chats and, oh, it's, yeah, it was all such a collaborative effort, as you say. And yes, and I think, you know, I mean, as we, we mentioned before, you spent 10 years researching the this book because there was so much. And every time you read a new telegram or you read an open um, a new letter, it opens the whole world and a whole new new connection to, to another collector or another craftsman. So it's uh, it's really a, a beautiful historical book, I thought, um, regardless of people are interested in jewelry or not, just a, as a family history, a history of a business. Uh, through four generations, and uh, I mean, if people haven't read it yet, I think I would, I would, ex- I would just recommend just, just get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Give, and also gift it. That's a book that you want to share with other people because it's, you know, it's like so many lively stories. And I think was you mentioned some of the the famous collectors. You only mentioned collectors who um, are, are not alive anymore, out of respect and uh, for the for privacy, the only uh, people that you mentioned are the royal family of England mm. um, as collectors. But so it's really it's really a story that takes you through through so many universes: the fashion, art, um, politics, history. So um, and yeah, I really I absolutely 
love this book. I think I read it in, in lockdown, I think, less than a week because I wanted to know what's happening, what's happening. And I'm not even mentioning the love stories between the some of the characters. I'm, I'm just going to, to finish with the, the story of your grandfather, Jean-Jacques, how during the war he traveled to uh, to the south of France to, to visit his uh, his fiancée and the risk he took to actually be able to to see her, I think, is so romantic and so beautiful. Yeah, yeah but that's it. Because it is, that's, you know, it's a, it fundamentally, I wanted it to be a human story, you know, about mm. four generations and the highs and lows. And that's what I kind of really discovered as well, is that these, these characters who, yes, you know, Louis was this creative genius, but he could also be difficult and um, impatient and, you know, could fly into a rage and, Everyone's got, you know, like an, it's, it's real life, you know, people have great sides and, and less good sides and there's love and there's fear and there's um, jealousy and but that, that's real, you know, so that's what I wanted to kind of to show. And it's, it's really beautifully rendered. And uh, as I said, it's a, it's a wonderful family story, really, beyond the, beyond the jewels, beyond the jewels, beyond the, the creations that you know a lot of our listeners will be will be familiar with i think that just will give them such a, a deeper appreciation of a, of a quality piece when they when they next see it yeah i hope so i think well for me that's what's always interested me about the jewelry um is is, is the, the stories behind it and the people behind it and what you realize with jewelry is why why it's so fascinating is there's the people behind it, behind its creation, but then there are all the people who have owned it as well. Um, and mm. so that was great fun following pieces like the Romanov emeralds, you know, from Russia and then being smuggled out of Russia after the revolution and then ending up in America and Jazz A's America and Cartier make them into a, you know, a 1920s sautoir. And then the Great Depression happens and they have to be sold again and they end up in London and they're made into a, you know, a big necklace and a big ring and then they move again and eventually they're split up but just following those those gems you it's the story of 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 people as well you know and of of changing times um that's what i found absolutely so if anyone is still looking for for book recommendation this is it (laughs) i think i think it's been already translated in a few languages and i know you're working on more more translations um because that's clearly a, a book of global interest um francesca thank you so much for your time I know you uh, you're juggling uh, a lot of things during this uh, this lockdown, <laughs> homeschooling and other other obligations. So thank you so much for for having shared this uh, interview with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And um, we're going to conclude this this podcast. And I would like you, as a conclusion, do you have another book that you would like to recommend about the courtiers that um, our listeners might be interested to to read to to further their knowledge? Yeah, well, I think probably, I mean, for me and my research, I think the best book that, and, and was for certain my grandfather felt as well, the kind of Bible on Cartier, has got to be the um, Hans Nagelhofer's book mm. on Cartier, written in the 1980s, really, um, which just covers the history. I mean, his is more of the history of the jewellery, mine is more history of the of the people and the family. So hopefully <laughs> together they really give you a, a full picture. Um, but I think that that is a very hard to beat book fantastic book Cartier by Hans Nadelhofer fantastic so take note listeners well you need on your on your bookcases and especially and to read not just to put on a bookshelf but also to to read and appreciate thank you so much Francesca I wish you well and to the next podcast bye-bye bye thanks for joining us at the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast 
you enjoyed this and would like more top quality jewelry content, check out the Jewelry Connoisseur blog at jewelryconnoisseur.net. 